If you're taking notes this morning, I've titled our time in God's Word this morning, One Glorious Morning. One Glorious Morning. I don't know what the best morning you've ever had in your entire life is. Maybe you can't remember one. Maybe they all run together because all of your mornings are great. Probably not, right? You're reminded it's Monday tomorrow. I know. But this morning, this particular morning, there's never been, there never will be a morning like it on planet Earth. Heaven and Earth will pass away. There'll never be a morning like it. And yet very few people experienced it. I mean, personally, face-to-face experience. You and I now experience it in the Lord. If you're saved, you feel like you were there to an extent. But a very, very few people, Jesus reserved this glorious morning, the greatest morning on the history of planet Earth. But it didn't start out earlier in the week this way. If you're taking notes, we'll look at three things this morning, just three things from this text. Darkness, discovery, and deliverance. Darkness, discovery, and deliverance. Mary rises. Probably couldn't sleep anyway. They had to wait until after the Sabbath. This was the first day of the week. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week. They had to wait till the first day of the week because they could not travel a certain distance outside the city on the Sabbath day. So they had to wait until the first day of the week, which was not uh, prohibitive from traveling. But the Sabbath was that day of rest where those that were Jewish obeyed the Torah and the law. And so they waited till that first day of the week when they could then take additional spices. Now Jesus, as soon as he died, they had to bury him before the sun uh, would set, according to Jewish law. And he was buried in a lot of spices to begin with. But these women, led by Mary, they wanted to do even more. They wanted to see him again. And so she rises and heads the tomb while it's still dark. Now, it's been dark for three days. It's been a dark three days for the committed followers of Jesus. A very dark three days for them. The Passover week that it started out so joyfully when Jesus had rode on the foal of a donkey down the Mount of Olives into the temple, in through the east gate, perhaps through the sheep gate, but one of those two uh, comes down from the east side, and that was when he was lauded by the multitudes and the palm branches and Hosanna, son of David, saying, save us. Of course, they didn't want save, saving from sin. They wanted to be saved from the Roman Empire. And it was so glorious when he entered a week earlier on the 10th of Nisan. And it was dark when they came for Jesus several days later in the Garden of Gethsemane, wasn't it? It was in the dark of night when they came to arrest him. And he was betrayed by a supposed follower named Judas, whose heart had become very, very dark. It was dark when he was taken before the high priest in the Sanhedrin. Who is the Sanhedrin? Well, the Sanhedrin were the 71 ruling elders. Anything that was a high, high decision, especially if it involved a death sentence, would have to involve the Sanhedrin. 71 Jewish rulers, leaders, priests, scribes, Pharisees, the highest 71, and the highest of the 71, the high priest himself. At that time, a man named Caiaphas. And interestingly enough, in this dark of night, what are the chances that all 71 Sanhedrin happened to be at Caiaphas' house in the middle of the night? Well, this had been well planned. This was weeks and weeks in the planning. We know that when Jesus was in Bethany, they were already plotting his destruction. You know, 71 high-ranking people are not usually wide awake at the high priest's house in the middle of the night. But they have gathered there for a predefined trial. The conspiracy had been perfectly planned, carefully planned. It was an illegal trial on top of all that because you were not allowed to try, the Sanhedrin was not allowed to try people in the dark. 
had to be daylight. They had a little, they had a little um, workaround for that. People have a way of having workarounds for what they really want to do, don't they? A little workaround. They actually wouldn't give their sentence until as soon as the day broke. They would just complete everything in the night, and as soon as the first light was, then they would be lawful and their decision. All this was planned. By the way, all these Sanhedrin members, they didn't all live in the same place, but they had to all be gathered there in the night. Caiaphas gave the orders, be at my house, such and so. We got some business to take care of. This Jesus of Nazareth is finally going to be removed from the equation. Of course, Jesus knew all this. He said way back in Luke chapter 9 that he would come to Jerusalem. He would be rejected by the chief priests and the elders, and he would be killed, but the third day he arrived. He came knowing the trap that was laid. They thought they laid the trap, and actually Jesus said, I'm already fully prepared. I know what you're going to do. He knew what Judas was going to do. He knew what Caiaphas was going to do. But his, his followers didn't understand this. The text tells us there in John 20, verse 9, yet, as, yet they did not know what the Scripture said. They still didn't get it. They didn't understand that Jesus was going to die, so this dark few days was pitch black for them. It was dark through the night as a parade of false witnesses that the Sanhedrin uh, listened to. They couldn't even agree on their own testimony. Witness after witness after witness. They couldn't even find two that agreed. Finally, two came forward, and they agreed on one specific testimony. They said, we heard this fellow, being Jesus, we heard this fellow say that he would destroy the temple, and three days later he would raise it back up. And Caiaphas acted like he was so distraught when he heard that, he ripped the high priest's garments. You ever seen how beautiful the high priest's garments? We did that when we were in the book of Exodus. He ripped the garments, which was illegal to do unless it was a period of intense mourning. And he feigned that he was so upset, he rips and tears off his garments in the middle of the night and says, what more do we need? And everyone agreed he should be killed. Darkness of night, they began to beat him. They spit in his face. I don't know if you've ever had anyone spit in your face. But this wasn't one or two. This is a lot. Man after man after man spitting in the face of God himself in the dark of night. He was beaten again and mocked. And when the dawn broke that morning, the darkness of death was palpable to everyone. Anyone in the area knew something was happening, but no one knew quite what was going on. The disciples of Jesus, the word had already spread. They had told each other he had been taken in the middle of the night of the Garden of Gethsemane. Where were they taken? They took him to Annas' house first, from Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest, over to Caiaphas' house. If I showed you on the map, I could show you exactly where he went. He was taken there. All night he's been interrogated. Have you seen him? Yes. He had spit all over his face, and he'd been beaten severely but we don't know what took place inside. They All they could see, Peter, remember, stood outside, denied him three times in the dark of the night. Caiaphas, the high priest, he would settle for nothing less than Jesus' execution. Jesus was sent to death by the Sanhedrin as soon as the dawn broke. Again, that was their workaround. The fact that you could not have a death sentence in the dark in the night had to be in the daytime. Of course, the whole trial should have been during the daytime as well, but they made an exception for this particular heinous crime. Their crime, not his. He's ultimately sent to Pilate. Pilate was the ruling Roman leader at the time. He's sent to Pilate. He later goes to Herod too. Who, why was Herod in town? Herod was in town because it was Passover week, and Herod was the one that built the magnificent temple. It actually added on to it, but Pilate owned the jurisdiction he ends up going to Pilate and to Herod. Interestingly enough, Pilate and Herod hated each other until that day. Then they became good buddies. They both had a guilty conscience. Pilate ultimately would approve and mandate the death sentence. It had to be done by Roman authority. The Jewish Sanhedrin could not give the death penalty, so they leaned politically on Pilate, who finally gave in and said, okay, 
but, your, but his blood's on your hands. The darkness and despair continues after the sentence as his followers helplessly watch their Lord emerge from further inquisitions, beaten by a cat of nine tails which shredded his back. His face became marred beyond recognition. The darkness of evil then falls on Jerusalem. A holy city established. David laid the foundations of the city of David long before that Abraham had gone there, but the city had become as dark and evil that day as any city ever has been or ever will be. The darkness of evil falls like a heavy cloud when just days earlier the same crowd was saying, Hosanna, now they're chanting, crucify him. Rather than a thirst for living water, the leaders and the people have a thirst for blood, a desire for blood. Not just any man's blood, the Son of God's blood. You can only imagine, you can only imagine the darkness and evil revelry of Satan and the demonic horde taking place in the unseen spiritual realm. Anyone ever seen the Chronicles of Narnia when Aslan the lion lays down and gives his life? You see the demonic horde that is there and they are cheering and jeering and rejoicing. I know it's just a movie, but folks, the demon world, this was their Super Bowl. They were ecstatic. Although it was dark for Jesus' followers, and Jesus' followers hardly had any tears left, and to see their own Lord beaten beyond recognition, the demon world loved every minute of it. Satan thought he was about to pull off the greatest victory that he could imagine. The evil is so dark at that time in Jerusalem that Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, I don't know if you've read this in your Bibles, I don't know if you remember it's in your Bibles, but the evil became so dark that Jesus, the revelation of Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, this is what it tells us. It says that Jerusalem is referred to there in Revelation 11, 8, as that great city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. What is God saying there? He said that day, Jerusalem became so dark, such a center of evil, the demonic world descended on Jerusalem to kill the Son of God. The people cried out for blood. The Roman leaders were in on it. The Jewish leaders were in on it. The world, the Jew, the Gentile, the demonic world, everyone, and you and me, put Jesus on the cross. And God said that day, Jerusalem was to me like Sodom or Egypt. What does that mean? Any sin goes, any demonic deity goes. And Jesus looked like he had been defeated. Peter would later say, Peter would later say after the resurrection, Peter would say in that very temple that you saw a picture of, not too long after the resurrection, Peter would stand in that same temple in Acts chapter 3, verses 13 and 15. Listen to what Peter says to his own countrymen. This is a good way to get yourself hurt if you're a preacher when you say what Peter's about to say. Peter stands up speaking to that massive temple. People gathered there and he said this. He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. Peter said, Pilate would have let him go, but you would have none of it. But you denied the Holy One and just, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the prince of life, but doesn't stop there, he says, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. He said, you asked for a murderer. You wanted a murderer. God sent his only begotten son, and you wanted a murderer. You wanted to crucify, not just if death by firing squad, you wanted him crucified. But he said, God raised him. That dark hour no doubt haunted Mary, Miriam Magdala. The women that followed Jesus, 
they were so devoted to him. You can do a study. It's amazing their devotion. The men obviously were too. The apostles would come out of that group of disciples. But no doubt that dark hour. Can you imagine if you witnessed Jesus' resurrection like Mary, how many times you might play certain thoughts over in your head? Do you think you would have slept much for the next three days? No, they had followed him for nearly three years. The day he was crucified, by 9 a.m., Jesus was on the cross. By 9 in the morning. Remember, the railroad trial was in the middle of the night. The prosecution came in the morning. By 9 o'clock in the morning, he was on the cross. By 9 a.m., the first watch there. His crucifixion began. The darkness of death was now inevitable. Once you're on a cross, you will die. It's a matter of time. It's not a quick execution, as I mentioned. It's not a firing squad, not a hanging, not a lethal drug that you just kind of go to sleep. It's an agonizing, painful, brutal type of death. It was grisly. Rome did it to be a warning to everyone, do not cross Rome. Caesar will not be bucked. Matthew 27, verses 45 and 46 says, Now from the sixth hour... Until the ninth hour, from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, there was darkness all over the... The sky became pitch black dark. That ought to get everyone's attention. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the darkness is even heavier on the disciples of Jesus. They hear Jesus cry out, My God, why have you forsaken me? They feel the same way for him and for themselves. But in all the darkness of the past few days, and in all the deep sadness that Mary and the others were feeling, Mary has this amazingly deep desire to still go visit him at the tomb. I know you can overlook that, but deep down, when everyone else is just distraught, she is still determined, not just her, but several other women, Joanna, Salome, uh, the other Mary, the mother of James, there's other, a few of them, they are determined to go to the tomb, if nothing else, to love him from whatever is left. As she arrives... It's still dark. It's been dark for three days. Their hearts feel dark. She arrives while it's, she leaves while it's still dark. We don't even know where they came from. We don't know if they were in a place outside Jerusalem, inside Jerusalem, where this house where they were staying. They were all scared for their lives on top of it all. So somebody was taking good care of protecting where they were, but they leave while it's still dark. Early in the morning, the final watch of the night, if you will, on the Hebrew clock, the sun will dawn around 6 a.m., but they're leaving while it's still dark, and they arrive at the tomb. We don't know what distance this was. They arrive at the tomb, Mary and these other few women, and you have to be amazed. You have to be amazed at their love for Christ. The men aren't even there. It's these women and their belief. Here's what amazes me. They believe at some level that they're going to somehow see him. They get there and somehow hope against hope. I don't know what they're thinking. They're, they're mourning. They're distraught. But some level, they actually they bring all the spices as if they're going to get to anoint his body. There's a massive stone. The way that they load the stone and the stone... The, the way they roll the stone in front of the tomb, this, the slope is, it comes down so the, it's easy to roll the stone into place. It's nearly impossible to roll it out of place. You ever tried to push a car uphill? They roll the stone. These are massive stones. It takes men, several men to roll it in the first place. They roll it down, it, and it hops over a ridge at the bottom so it locks into place. And here's a group of women with no strength, they've been weeping for three days, and they go to the tomb, and they're hoping that they get to anoint his body. 
never mind the Roman guards, a minimum of four. Some believe as many as 16. Some believe as many as 50 Roman soldiers. By the way, four Roman soldiers, back to back to back, they would actually fight that way, could take on an entire battalion. They were armed to the teeth. They were mean as could be. They were chiseled and battle-hardened soldiers. There's a watch of soldiers somewhere between, again, I believe, between four and 16 soldiers. They come and they hope that they get to anoint his body. One of the Roman soldiers says, yeah, yeah, let's, we'll move the stone, go on in. They were under penalty of death if anyone touched the body. I don't know about you, but I'm not thinking that I, yeah, you go on in, I'll, I'll take the death penalty. But they go anyway, just hoping for some help from God that they could at least touch the dead body of Jesus and put additional spices, which came out of their own money and their own pockets. It's a sacrifice. It's a gift. It's an offering. All they want to say is, we know that you died, but we still love you anyway. You ever had someone die and you say, we still want to just let you know we love you? And they were there, and they somehow believed that they were going to see the dead body of Jesus. They arrive in the stone... When they get there, the stone's rolled back. It's not in the place. This massive stone has been lifted up over the ridge, back up the slope, and it's not, or it could be on the other side, we don't know. All we know is the tomb is empty, or open. They don't know it's empty at this point. It's open. They, it, the, the sun has just begun to rise. You can't see as well as you can later in the day, but they see one thing. That door is open, and there is no stone on it, and where are the Roman soldiers? Where are the, they're nowhere to be found. See, the Holy Spirit, you've got to understand this, the Holy Spirit led these ladies to that tomb that morning. They couldn't even tell. I bet you when you get to heaven, they'll tell you, we're not even sure why we went. Something told us to grab the spices and go. Well, how did you think you were going to get past the Roman soldiers? We didn't even think about that. How did you think you were going to open the tomb? We didn't think about that either. What were you thinking? We weren't. We were only thinking, let's go. What did you think would take place? We had no idea. We were just sad. And we knew where he was, even if we had to just stand outside. But when they get there, the stone had been taken away, verse 1. If you're taking notes this discovery. What takes place then? Look at their response in verse 2. They see that the tomb is open. They ran back, I don't know how far, Mary specifically is mentioned here to run back to Simon Peter and the other disciples. She runs back to where the disciples are and she says, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have taken. We don't know who they is. I don't think she knows who they is. They Who's they? You know, we use this term. Well, you know, them people. Somebody took him. Stones got, rolled away. They've taken our Lord. The initial discovery is then followed by a series of discoveries. The first being that the stone was rolled away, but what's their immediate response? Someone has taken Jesus. Someone's taken his dead body, probably to further desecrate him, maybe to burn the body, maybe to mock it, maybe to hang it somewhere, maybe just to inflict further pain on his followers. They don't know. Did Rome do it? Did the Sanhedrin authorize this? They have no idea. And the disciples hear about it. And Peter and John, now if you know, remember John, one of his titles is Sons of Thunder. Peter... They really don't believe them. We know that other Gospels tell us when they first heard the report, they didn't believe, but they figured, as the man, we should at least go check this out. You ladies have no idea. You don't know what an open door looks like. <laughs> you don't know what a tomb looks like either. You probably don't know what a stone looks like, but let us go check this out. What were you doing out there early in the morning anyway? Well, we went to see. How would you even think you would see them? Are you going to get past a guard of Roman soldiers? I mean, how's that going to work? But anyway, they run. John, showing his youthful athleticism, passes Peter on the way. John gets there and peers in, and Peter flies right by, probably knocking his arm, and runs right into the tomb. 
And they notice it's not just that the tomb is open. The burial clothes are just laying there. And the emphasis of the text actually says laying there as if where he lay, just laying there. But what was around his head is folded up perfectly like someone leaving and just leaves a little note or something. And it's not even, in, it's not beside where he folded, said it, it was folded and then put it in a different place, but the body's just laying there. Now, it would make zero sense if someone stole the body to unwrap the body. You've got to get out of there quick. You grab the body, get the body out. It makes no sense to unwrap it whatsoever. This is an in and out operation even if somebody were doing that, which, by the way, this is the whole reason why they put the Roman soldiers there, because the chief priest said, they said this fellow would rise from the dead. By the way, they weren't even saying that he would rise from the dead. The people that didn't believe said he might rise from the dead. So we need to put a watch out there to make sure it doesn't happen, but there's all the linen garments are right there, left exactly where they are. You see, the stone was not rolled away for Jesus to get out. If you read the rest of what's left of the uh, Gospels from here, the last 40 days he's on the earth, Jesus walks through walls. He shows up anywhere. Of course, he could have always done this. Don't, don't, I mean, when you're God, you can do anything. You, he did a few of them. Walked on water, did these things that are uh, impossible for you and I. But he did not need, the angels didn't roll the stone away for him. No one unwrapped his he just rises right out of them, through them, straight through. He's already out of the tomb when they get there. The angels roll it back for who? Not for Jesus, for you and me to be let in. Jesus is not restrained. No more than wherever, when he was at the center of the earth for three days, three nights, he comes back up. He does not need anyone to unwrap it. Matter of fact, just to make sure he accentuates the point, I'll fold the napkin and put it over here. He's defeated death as simply as folding a cloth. As simple as it is just to fold a cloth, that's how easy it is for Jesus. I know this is difficult for you guys, but I don't need the stone rolled away. I don't need any help. I've been walking around the garden and you didn't even know I was here. And even when you see me, you're not even sure. Peter and John head back. It says that as far as they uh, said that when the disciple who came to the tomb first, that being John, he saw and believed. It may be that John was the only one that actually believed at this point because the scriptures say the disciples were all rebuked by the Lord for their unbelief. But he's not quite sure exactly what's taken place. It says in another place that Peter marveled at what he had seen. They believe something miraculous has taken place, but I don't believe they're exactly sure what has taken place. And Mary and the women, Peter and John, they head back. They're like, we've got to go tell somebody what we've seen. We don't know what any of it means. They head back, but the women, they don't head back. They stay in the garden at least for a little while. And we don't know where the other women... Uh, uh, now, we've been to the garden tomb in Jerusalem. It's big enough that you can have, you know, a couple hundred people spread out and not even know where, you know. So if the ladies are just kind of walking around bewildered, we don't know. But the women remain in the garden area. But somehow Mary ends up by the tomb by herself for a period here because it tells us, look in your Bibles, in verse 11, John chapter 20, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. Jesus' body's not there. The linen garments are still there. Peter and John verify he's not there. They head back. The women remain in the garden because we can take the other three Gospels and we can compare the difference and in each one of them give us a little glimpse. But Mary stays by the tomb opening just weeping. Somehow more tears were in there. And she weeps some more because even if something miraculous has taken place, she's actually still not sure what it all means. And then she sees two angels. These angels appear to actually come and go at certain times. By the way, angels can do this. 
If you, uh, if you actually see a Bible story that the angels were all sitting there, no, it, they, did what, they did appear to some, but they didn't appear to all. Peter and John doesn't seem to record that they saw the angels, but the lady saw and she sees these two angels, and she's so distraught, she seems to miss the point she's talking to angels. She couldn't care less about angels. She wants Jesus. That is something else. She is so distraught about losing her Savior. Two angels are sitting, one at the head. They weren't there at the first, but then when she looks back in, they are sitting there, and they've appeared just for her, and they say, why are you weeping? Don't you love it when God and his messengers ask questions they know the answer to? Why are you weeping? They know why she's weeping. They want to hear her heart. God has sent them on a mission that have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Later it would dawn on her, why, why did I say that? Those were two angels. I'm sure I could have gotten better information than that. <laughs> and then she turns around. You ever, you ever sense someone's behind you? You just sense someone's behind you. Well, when God's nearby, you better sense it. She senses something. She turns around and she looks, and it's Jesus. And he asked the same question as his two messengers. Why are you weeping? If you're taking notes under deliverance here. Her response. First, her response is, Sir, supposing him to be the gardener. It did not dawn on her that he actually is not only risen from the dead, but that he's going to appear to her personally. Sir, if you've carried him away. I mean, none of this makes any sense. Mary, the gardener? The gardener? The gardener took out the Roman soldiers? And then he hangs around at the scene of the crime? But again, none of those things matter to Mary. All she's thinking about is her sadness and her Savior. That's it. But then, Jesus asked her the same question, who are you weeping? Or what woman, why are you weeping? And who are you seeking? And he pauses, and he lets her continue to stay in this confused state, because he then says only this, verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary. That is amazing. I love, there's a song that I love that says, he knows my name. One word. One word, her name. You know, anyone can say your name, but if God says your name to you with emphasis, and oh, by the way, you're the first person to hear him speak after the resurrection, the very first person, and he doesn't say anything about himself. He says, Mary. She's overwhelmed with joy. Look at her response. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, teacher, you taught us for three years. How did I miss all this? How did I not understand what you had taught? You said you would die. You said you'd be rejected. You said you'd rise from the dead. How did I miss it all? Pure joy. The Bible makes it clear that she must have flung her arms around him, probably at the legs as a sign of worship and holding on for dear life. And the other women must hear of it because the other Gospels tell us that they also latched on to him. Before you know it, Jesus is standing there and this little group of women are all holding on for dear life. And Jesus says, when you first read it, it might sound a little bit harsh to you. I know when the first time I ever read it, it sounded, Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father. It's not the harshness it sounds. What Jesus is saying, hey, I actually have some other things I have to complete. I'm going to be spending some time with you, but there's some other things that I need to do. Namely, I have to go sit on a throne at the right hand of my Father. And when I do that, 
Remember I promised I would send the helper, the Holy Spirit. These things must, just like I had to come to Jerusalem, just like I had to die, just like I had to rise from the dead, there's some additional things that me and the Father and the Spirit will be doing. I'll let you worship for a moment, but now I've got another task. Because when you really belong to Jesus, your day doesn't belong to you. He says, now here's what I want you to do. Ladies, Mary, go back and tell the others. You see, she had come to anoint his dead body. But he's alive. And look how he assures her. He doesn't just assure by saying, don't cling to me. I've got things to do. I've got some things to do. But look what he says. He says, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. You know, if Jesus speaks directly to you and says that his God is your God, his father is your father, no one could ever make you feel better than Jesus himself saying, you may never be a millionaire, you may never get healed from this, that, or the other. You may never get what you want. You may not get your Christmas list, or you may not get the car you're hoping for, but here's the deal. Your dad is my dad, and my home is your home. It kind of puts everything else into its proper perspective. He assures her. Andrew Murray said, a dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. See, the resurrection, it validated everything that Jesus taught and commanded. It all proved to be exactly the way he said it. Paul would later write, the apostle Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 21, but now Christ is risen from the dead, and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. For since by man came death, way back in the first garden, Adam sinned, and fell. But in the last garden of Gethsemane, or of um, the garden tomb here, in the last garden, Jesus did not fall. He rose. And it started with a fall of Adam in the garden, but it was defeated with the rise of Jesus in the garden. That's why the scriptures call Jesus the second Adam. And by this man also came the resurrection from the dead. And even the day Jesus had entered the week on the 10th of Nisan, the Passover selection day, he's killed during Passover week, just like the Passover lambs, the 265, 256,000 plus lambs that were slaughtered that week for the city that swelled to over 2 million people for Passover. And Jesus, his blood, greater than all of those lambs and millions before. But then... He rises on the first day of the week. And not just any first day of the week. The Sabbath was Saturday. He rises on the Feast of First Fruits. That's weird. He rises while the high priest is actually waving the sheaf offering before the Lord. What was the sheaf offering? Well, they would take an omer of grain, a small amount of grain. They would wave it before the Lord, and it was to take place on the first day of the week after the Sabbath, during Passover week. So you had, the, you had the Passover, you had the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you had the Sabbath, and then you had the Feast of First Fruits, where the high priest would be in the temple. And while the high priest that put Jesus to death is waving the sheaf offering before the Lord, the high priest that had conquered death is actually risen from the dead just a little ways away from the temple. And he's having his private worship service with a few followers. And the feast, Paul said, he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He rose on that same day, the first day of the week. Here's what else is interesting about this morning that Jesus rises from the dead. First day of the week, feast of first fruits. But the feast of first fruits, they were waving the offering that God would bless. Get this, that God would bless the harvest. Hmm. Jesus said the fields are white unto harvest. He himself was blessing the harvest of souls that would come, including my soul, and if you're born again, your soul, and if you're not born again and are going to get born again, and you're a pre-believer, your soul as well. 
He was blessing the harvest. He rose. Just a few days later, a few days earlier, the temple veil had been torn in two, and everyone had access because he was the high priest that had conquered sin and death, but he also was the high priest that was the sacrifice. He didn't just give a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. And now begins a harvest of souls that would be, as he within the next 40 days, speak to his followers and say, go and tell the world that I've risen from the dead. But some people won't believe. Jesus said, that's not your problem. You simply tell them. But some people will say, I don't believe there is a God. And Jesus says, you tell them anyway. But some people will say, it's just a made-up story and it didn't even happen anyway. Jesus says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. You tell what I tell you to tell. And you know what? When you've actually experienced it like Mary, you don't need anyone else to convince you because you've seen with your own eyes You have to wonder why Mary Magdalene is the first person to see Jesus out of the resurrection. Why Mary? First person to see Jesus out of the resurrection, Mary Magdalene. Well, Mark's gospel records this about Mary. Maybe you didn't know this. In Mark 16, 9, it says, Now he rose early on the first day of the week. He appeared first to Mary of Magdalene out of whom he had cast out seven demons. Mary wasn't always a Jesus follower. I meet people that say, you know, if I tell them, I used to cuss a lot, and I used to do this, and I used to live this way, and I used to, uh, you know, I used to be a bartender in college, and I had no interest, and I wouldn't step foot in a church, and for five years, I wanted nothing to do with a church. I wouldn't even go into one because I had no interest in it whatsoever. And people say, I have a hard time seeing that. Imagine Mary. I used to be filled with seven demons. You think that some women are really, really have a temper? <laughs> a woman filled with seven demons. There was men that would avoid Mary. And Jesus had liberated her from not one demon, seven demons. Demons. Jesus is the only one that demons were afraid of. Jesus had zero fear. He'd walk into the most demonically possessed place. Everyone else is running and hiding. Jesus walked in and said, get out now. He claimed her as his own. You want to know why she was there at the tomb before anybody else? She said, I used to have seven demons in me. I was literally being carried away to hell by seven demons that were determined to destroy me for all eternity. And Jesus said, she doesn't belong to you. She belongs to me. Isn't that amazing? She knew she had been taken by force by the Lord away from Satan. Her life had been in total darkness before she met Jesus. She was in sin. She was in bondage. We don't know what sin she was doing, but we know that she was in complete bondage of sin probably occultic things, probably false worship, idolatry, you name it, and everything else. She lived in fear. And by the way, people that are tormented by demons are not happy. They almost always say, please deliver me. But Paul would write in Colossians 1.13, this is true of any of us who have come to Jesus Christ, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Jesus came to Mary whom he had cast out seven demons, and it was no accident. First and foremost, he appeared to her. See, women also had a lower place in society. Their witness didn't matter much. Their word didn't matter much. Their position didn't matter much. They had a lower place in society. Yet Jesus, after his resurrection, appears to first a woman. A woman that the religious leaders would have even thought less of than other women because they knew she used to be a demon-possessed woman. Can you imagine what Caiaphas thought of her? She was the scum of the earth. Caiaphas was the high priest. He actually was full of darkness, according to the Lord. And yet he would consider her a low life, nothing, 
former demon-possessed woman following this figure Jesus who I killed. And by the way, if these were cleverly devised myths, as Peter references in 2 Peter 1.16, as opposed to authentic, true witness, women would never, the gospel writers would never have presented women as the first witnesses. You would never present women as the first witnesses to first century Jerusalem. Because that wouldn't, that wouldn't win anybody over. They'd be like, you put women as your first, we don't even take their testimony. And they said, we don't have a choice. That's who Jesus went to first. Because they were only there to tell what happened, not what people want it to be, but what it actually is. But the fact that Jesus appears to Mary first, doesn't this speak, doesn't this speak to Christ's desire to always, always have his eyes on the outcast? Those that are maligned? those that are in chains, those that the world considers of insignificant and low value, those that the world says, write them off, but Jesus said, no, not me. I'm in the job of rebuilding people that no one else thinks are worth the time. He's the healer. We saw in the song, uh, that song that we played, which, by the way, I got saved in 1995. That song came out in 1994, it's, it was just a little bit before we got saved, that song came out, and I've loved it ever since. It's one of my favorite Easter songs, resurrection songs. But you might have noticed that in Malachi, this verse was mentioned, Malachi 4.2, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing his wing. In that verse, it's spelled S-U-N, and Jesus rose with the dawn. The S-O-N rose with the S-U-N, with healing in his wings. Why? Because Jesus created the sun and the moon and the stars, but the sun, moon, and stars can't actually heal. We love the sunshine this morning, didn't we? But only the S-O-N actually brings healing. John Newton, close with this. You guys know who John Newton is. He wrote Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader, 1700s. He ended up being helpful to William Wilberforce in eradicating slavery in England, even before it was, a, uh, he died before the slavery was eradicated, but he got to see some uh, good things happen in the movement of abolition. But he formerly was a slave trader himself, an evil man who had come to Christ, which is why he wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. The same way Mary would have looked at herself, he says this, he says, this is faith the renouncing of everything we are apt to call our own and relying wholly upon the blood, righteousness, and intercession of Jesus. That's what faith is, calling upon the name of the Lord. Let's close in prayer as the worship team comes up. You know, I know that many of you, this is a great day of celebration. You celebrated on your own this morning in your time of prayer, in your devotions. I know I did this morning. The first thing I did this morning is I reread, even though I've read this story many times, I reread it in the different Gospels this morning because for me, it not only never gets old, but you know, I look forward to someday. Jesus said to Mary, I'm going to your father and my father, your house and my house. Someday, Jesus is going to tell those of us who are born again the story with his own lips. And we're going to hear details we did not know about. You, you did that? He'll tell the whole thing. You'll get to talk to Mary if you're saved and ask her, you know, John did a pretty good job, but can you tell me some more details? about how you felt that morning. But you know what? The only way that that happens, just like you're coming into this world is real, the exit from this world is real. And Jesus came for one reason only. You know, he didn't come to take over Rome. 
That would have been easy for him. He said he could have called 10,000 angels. Anytime he want, Herod, gone. Caesar, gone. But he came to bleed and die. Six hours on the cross, three days in the grave, to accomplish what his father said was the only penalty, the only purchase that was worth the sins of the world. How many sins do you think were committed this morning on planet Earth? Millions. Just this morning, just in our hour together, millions of sins have been committed, and Jesus paid for every single one of them. What if I have seven demons? Doesn't matter. What if I'm a thief on the cross? Jesus said to one of the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. He forgive anyone of anything. He came that you and I would have eternal life. But a lot of people will say, don't want it. What do you want instead? I want whatever this world has to offer me. Not a good choice, folks. Because life, according to the scriptures, is but a vapor. But Jesus has come that you might have life. And as the worship team slowly plays, you know, Jesus is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You don't have to work for salvation. You ask for forgiveness. If you say, I, you know, I'm here today. I don't know how you got here. Who invited you? If you're visiting, if you're here, God wanted you to be here. I'm telling you right now. Anytime this message is preached and you hear it, God wanted you to hear it. And he says, accept my son. Call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. Simply as you guys bow your heads and the worship team begins to play, if you want to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, just stand right where you're at. Don't worry about what your friends think. Don't worry about what this church thinks. Just say, I want Mary's God to be my God. I want Jesus' home to be my home. And he'll forgive you even if you have blasphemed his name. Even if you like to use his name as a swear word and you feel guilty about it, he'll forgive you in an instant. Just stand right where you're at.